Hey, hey, remarkable people. This is Tracy Robbins, and you are listening to Thy Neighbor Podcast. This podcast is designed to inspire you to expand your community, to connect more often with those who are in your path, and of course, to love thy neighbor as thyself. You will hear from individuals in my day-to-day life who are crushing it and making the world a more lovely place to inhabit. Have a listen. Today's guest, Natalie Lovell, is a friend I met when I was attending the Young Single Little Award in Sandy. And Natalie is one of those people who has an enthusiasm and zest for life that is contagious and fun to be around. She attended Utah State and got her degree in public relations and communication studies. She went on to work for an ad agency for a couple years before getting her master's degree at Southern Utah University in professional communication and focused on leadership and culture within that degree. And of course, she is an epic pickleball player. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. And I would like you to start off by telling us about what, where you're from, your family, hobbies, professional pursuits, even though I covered some of those things, you can tell us a little bit more detail. Yeah, I am happy to be here, Ms. Tracy. Um, so like she said, my name's Natalie. I'm just from the Salt Lake area. Went to Murray High School, home of uh, Spartans and David Archuleta, our infamous name there. <laughs> um, anyways, I grew up in Murray. I love, I love Utah. I would love to get out of Utah for a few years, but it's always, you know, why leave when you've got the mountains? You got so many great people. You've got pickleball, Wiley. So here we are. Um, like she said, I've been working in an ad agency for a couple of years now. Um, well, about four years now. I did a couple of years. Went and got my master's. Came back, and I do community outreach. So I am out in high schools and in communities. I'm sure you've all heard of zero fatalities. If you live in Utah, buckle up. So that's uh, I helped to run that that campaign. So yeah, we we want you to buckle up, Tracy. Get that seatbelt on. What about texting and driving? Oh, yeah, we don't like that either. We've got a campaign going on that we just did called Lies, of all the lies we tell ourselves, of how it's okay to text, or also speeding. We're doing it with speeding, how it's okay to speed, you know? So got to stop lying. That's a hard one. Okay. And there's a lot of hey, there's a lot of pieces of the program, but of course, that's kind of what we're known for, right? The, the, the signs above the freeway. But anyway, so yeah, I, I do a lot of community outreach, a lot of client relations is kind of what my job consists of, and I, I love it. I truly enjoy work. That's amazing. I saw Natalie give a presentation for the Utah Podcast Coalition, and she talked about communication. And so I'm taking these questions from that presentation, and I'm going to ask Natalie to kind of share these things that I learned from her and that I thought were mind-blowing and really powerful. What is self-concept? To give a little context here for the Podcast Coalition presentation, um, Steph had kind of originally come to me and said, I want you to talk about asking questions. You know, you know, you've done a lot of stuff with communication and I kind of took it. Well, I want to take this a little bit different way and kind of talk about kind of the inner interpersonal piece that's going in our heads and thinking about asking questions. And so self-concept is one thing that really deals with the interpersonal side of communication. It's a combination of two things. Self-concept is a combination of our self-image and our self-esteem. 
And so our self-image is all the things that make ourselves up or or that make up the pieces of ourselves, how we define ourselves as individuals. And this can be anything from our beliefs to our hobbies, to characteristics about ourselves, to our likes, to our dislikes, our insecurities. I mean, all the things that make up who we are as an individual. Then you combine that with your self-esteem, which is basically how you feel about those things. I, I always like to use the example, you know, I'm a loud mouth. That's just kind of the personality that I am. I'm very loud. I'm very, I can be obnoxious to some people. And so that is my, you know, my, my self-image. And when I add my self-esteem to that, it's like, how do I feel about it? Do I hate that I'm a loud mouth? Do I love that I'm a loud mouth? And obviously that can vary at different times. But you really combine those things together and our self-concept affects how we interact on a regular daily basis, right? It affects if I decide to insert myself in conversations, it affects if I feel the need to even do that. If I feel that, you know, all these different things, it affects how I'm listening to people. And so that's kind of how I approached it with, with, again, kind of going back to the podcast coalition of questions. You know, when we ask questions, what's really one of the pieces that's driving that internally? And one of those pieces is our self-concept. So, yeah. And then what are face needs? So yeah, face needs is a good question. I think we're all somewhat familiar with face needs. You know, people kind of use the term a lot of, you know, saving face. And really every person has three distinct needs. Um, And this is just kind of one, one of the ways that interpersonal communication looks at it. There's lots of different ways, as you know, within research that people kind of, you know, slightly differently define things. But one way is that people like to be seen as likable, competent, and independent. And when you look at those, I mean, each, each three of those needs are different for individuals. Some people would way rather be likable than they would be competent and all these things. You know, I would way rather people like me than feel like I need to be an expert. <laughs> and everybody's so totally different with that. But those needs, our face needs are, as, as a lot of researchers put it, they're as real as thirst and hunger. You know, we need these needs to be validated. We need to feel those things. And again, they vary from individual, but we all have those and we do things to try and protect those those face needs in our regular, again, daily interactions with people. For example, pickleball, if, you know, as, as Tracy said, you know, pickleball is a big part of my life. It's just a really big hobby. I like to do it competitively and I play it very regularly. And so, you know, maybe I want to be seen as a good pickleball player. And if somebody challenges that, or if somebody doesn't think I'm a good pickleball player, then they may try and quote unquote, save my face and not say that to my face or whatever, right? Like there's totally different ways that we handle those things, but it, it it's real. Like we feel those things and we, we, we need them. We crave them. And if we don't get them, then we do really weird things. We either get really defensive or we could act out. I mean, there's a variety of things, but one of the, bit, one of the biggest things is getting defensive actually. Yeah. I, that's the one I resonate most with. Well, and so, I mean, yeah, and then just kind of add a little context. I mean, it's been found in a lot of research that one of the biggest reasons that we get defensive is when our identity is questioned. So again, whether that relates directly to our face needs or other pieces, one of the biggest reasons that we get defensive is when our identity is questioned. And again, this could be something as simple as a pickleball hobby, or this could be something as as deep as a character, like a personality characteristic. People question and think that I am just full of myself and cocky and self-conceited and all these things. And really, I don't believe that that's, that's going to affect me, right? Like I'm going to get defensive about that. And in fact, I remember years ago when I first learned this, it's something that I've actually really tried to be aware of and conscious of because it is hard when somebody questions those things, like that's real for us. I don't want to be seen as fill in the blank as to whatever you're you're accusing me of in the language that you're using with me, right? Whether you're blatantly saying that I am whatever, or whether you're just using language that makes me feel that way, it's real. We totally feel that. And so, yeah, I mean, that's one of the biggest things that I've had to be aware of. And even just step back and look at the situation. 
because there could be so many reasons why they're saying it. Number one, they could just, I mean, this is just kind of the mouth of Natalie, right? But like, they could just totally be ignorant. Maybe I don't even know this person very well. Maybe they don't even know the situation very well. And they're just assuming things, which we all do that, you know, right? We all make very simple assumptions. Or, I mean, it could, I mean, there could be a variety of reasons. And maybe sometimes the fact of the matter is that is something that I need to change. And I need to, you know, step back and look at that and go, okay, am I wrong in how I'm viewing myself with this? And is this something I need to change? But again, I think I think the biggest thing comes like what you said is just being aware of that. Like, okay, how am I reacting in this situation? Why am I reacting this way? And, you know, what pieces of this do I have control of? And what of these pieces actually are true? Like, look mm-hmm. at the source, right? Look at the situation, look at all these pieces. And then we can kind of, you know, work through that ourselves. But yeah, it's it's a real thing. Yeah, that's an ongoing challenge. That's going to be, that's a lifelong pursuit, eh? Right. (laughs) How does one successfully challenge ideas and not attack character or people? Well, and see, that's, that's actually a tricky one because I'm sure you've been in one of these situations. I'm sure we all have where, you know, you, and it may even just start out very casually. You're hanging out with friends or a boyfriend or a roommate or whoever and something in the conversation turns heated, right? Like a top, like a buzzer topic, a controversial topic gets brought up. And before you know it, voices are raised and people, and, and it doesn't even mean that you're fighting, but you can tell that like the passion in that conversation and the heat and the emotion is so high. And so it's like, I think we've all been there. And I, I look back on some of the situations that I've been in that and it's, how does that happen? I don't know if you've ever felt that where you think back And it's not like you really did anything that you're ashamed of, but you're also kind of like, why did I get that tense about it? Why did I get that emotional? I think it really comes back to what you're saying with just awareness, right? I think for something for me and probably for all of us is I try really hard to be aware of my tone. When I'm having these discussions about important topics, again, whether it's LGBTQ issues, whether it's religious beliefs, whether it's, I mean, as simple as how to raise a kid, people have very you know, big opinions on vaccinations, right? The COVID vaccine, all these different things. People have a lot of (laughs) deep opinions about these things. And some people do just want to spout them off and want, and they want you to know that what they think. And some people actually want to have a discussion. And so it's like, for me, obviously I want to pick my battles, right? If it's just somebody who wants to tell me what they think, great. Tell me what you think and I'll listen, but I'm also probably not going to engage very much, right? Like, great. I'm glad to hear you think. But if it's somebody, you know, like you or somebody who I want to have a discussion with, for me, what I've been really working on is my tone, because when my tone is raised, that's when it goes from just we're discussing something to almost more of an like not necessarily an attack, but it's a totally different feel in the room because then you're going to get defensive and then it's going to be this just ripple effect and this cycle of like you're defensive, I'm defensive. Well, I got to be, you know, we're both just kind of going back and forth and the emotion is, is escalating. And so something I've tried really hard to work on is my tone of like, okay, I know that this is like a, you know, a trigger topic for me where I am passionate about, I'm going to try real hard to just talk calm and to talk mellow and to slow down my tone, keep it to where I can control it. And again, I'm never going to do that perfectly. You're never, you know, we're never going to do that perfectly, but I've noticed the big difference in that because if I, if I can at least try my best to do that, then it's not going to be the, again, that just constant back and forth of escalating. So that's at least one thing that I've found that will help me is number one, being aware, okay, this is something that I am passionate about and that I need to be aware of how I'm responding. And because of that, I'm going to be extra conscious of my tone and my words. And I think not even just my tone, but how I'm phrasing those things back. 
making sure that I'm consciously aware of that I'm trying to kind of almost stay neutral for lack of a better word, right? That I'm not accusing or that I'm not pointing fingers or not making you sound like, well, why would you think that or whatever, right? So I think a lot of it is just the awareness of both our nonverbals with our tone as well as what we're actually saying. And for me, it's really helped to kind of like keep it at a at a good, good vibe, right? Good vibe in the room. I like that. It kind of made me think like I should make a list of all the topics that are hot buttons for me (laughs) and actually look at how I could respond to them in a way that I would like myself afterwards. And sometimes you don't have time to think. Sometimes people bring stuff up and you just automatically get in the discussion, right? And you're just going left and right with, no, this is why this is whatever, right? And that's fine. But you know, like you're saying, I mean, it's just, I think a lot of it, if we can just slow down and, and kind of think for a second, it's like, okay, this is a discussion I want to have. I need to do my best to kind of keep it at a level, level-headed, you know, dynamic here. Yeah, that's Brooke Snow. Te- she teaches flipping the switch. She's like, you just take a deep breath in. <laughs> but it's true. Right? It's true. And it's hard to do. Our- we're trying to get out of the fight and flight and back into our prefrontal prefrontal cortex. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah. I mean, our default is not to do that. We do not naturally sit and think about before we speak. You know, we naturally pounce. <laughs> oh, how this rings true. <laughs> you shared the TED Talk, 10 Ways to Have a Better Conversation by Celeste Headley. And she's a professional interviewer. And she said at the end of her talk, I'm always prepared to be amazed I'm curious, how has your study of communication helped you be amazed at people you might have otherwise overlooked? Well, I'll kind of take this in in two directions to keep it kind of simple here. Um, That is a phrase that I love because I think sometimes we do overlook that. Like, I think it's so easy to get in our routine, whether it's with random people we meet at the office or random people through, you know, church or through other social things. It's just just another person, right? I mean, they're cool. Not, Not to say that we don't like all these people, but it's just kind of another person that we're meeting. But when you think about it, everybody does have something that we don't know that we could be amazed by from a variety of different ways. And so that's something that I know that when I when I am aware of it, when I think about it, when I go into just regular social situations, I try and remember that. It's like, okay, this person, you know, this may sound super judgmental of me, but I think we've all been there where you're sitting there and you're like, this person seems really boring. And some people just have more boring personality and that's fine, right? They're not loud. They're, you know, they're more quiet. They're more introverted. They're more shy. And that's great. But it's like, okay, they've got to have something cool about them that, you know, they're, they're, they're quiet about. But also even on the work side too, I think, I think work is especially a situation and a dynamic where we do feel even more of a need to be competent and to be viewed as experts. And we all have different situations where we feel it more than others, but work, I mean, it's naturally a competitive arena where we do feel the need to prove ourselves and to compete, show that we know what we're talking about and all these things. And so that's one place where I've tried to slow down and not even just be amazed, but learn. Like whether it's my boss, whether it's somebody on my team, whether it's my client, whether it's a partner, it's like, if I could just shut up and let them talk, they know something that I don't know. Whether it's just a a way that I could be doing something better that I haven't thought about, whether it's something with strategy or traffic safety or whatever it is, if I just shut up and don't interrupt them, I'm going to get something out of it. (laughs) And again, I'm not perfect at it, but I've learned that as I try to do that, if I can just let them finish instead of quickly trying to jump with what I thought of or what I think would work or or whatever, if I just shut up and let the room talk, I'll learn. I'll, I'll learn something new. The power of listening. Yeah, the, the power of shutting up, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I 
I think they're two different things. They are definitely two different things. <laughs> Pleasurable, informative, evaluative, and empathetic listening. Will you define them so people can think about them? Yeah. So basically, there are four different types of listening or reasons why we listen in the research. And so, like she said, there's pleasurable, informative, evaluative, and empathetic. And this is just kind of, I'll go over this really simply for you. But um, sometimes we do a combo of these things, but pleasurable listening is basically just when we listen kind of for the heck of it, right? It's when we get home after work and we're just, you know, it's just for simple entertainment, simple pleasure. We're shooting the bull at dinner time. You know, we're getting with our colleagues at lunch. There's no real stress on it. There's no real giant emotion. I mean, somebody may be venting or telling a funny story, but it's just simply to, you know, talk and entertain and have pleasure behind it. Now, informative um, is a little bit kind of one step further than that, where we're trying to actually gain information, right? Think of like a course in college. Think of a meeting at work where you're not just listening to shoot the bowl, but you're transitioning into listening to actually gain information, right? And the important part of informative, because we're not evaluative, but informative, we've got to be open-minded right there and suspend that judgment, but we're just trying to gain information. And then evaluative is kind of one step further from informative, where we're listening to gain understanding, but we're also looking for that validity and that truthfulness. And there's kind of a, you know some different specific scenarios for that, but we're more than just gaining information. We're trying to evaluate. And we do this a lot in regular life. Again, you can look at it as simple as looking at what's going on with COVID and how we evaluate what we're hearing with that, whatever, right? And then the last one simply is empathetic listening. And this one's kind of a step up from pleasurable listening. So it's kind of like informative and evaluative kind of go together to some degree and then pleasurable and empathetic. And empathetic is really where there's a reason, meaning emotionally. Listening to evaluate, we're not just listening to shoot the bull, but it can transition from pleasurable listening, shooting the bull to all of a sudden your roommate, your husband, whoever, you know, there's something really hard going on and they need you to be there. They need you to support them emotionally and they need you to to be there and to be present and to be that support. You kind of look at that and right, there's different different scenarios throughout our day where you may use all four of those. But obviously we need that variety throughout the day. And those are kind of the main the main reasons why we listen. What is something you learned from listening? One thing that I learned from listening, I mean, I'll kind of quote one of my favorite quotes that I did in the presentation from Stephen Covey is that oftentimes we listen to respond when we should be listening to understand. And I'm paraphrasing that. He quotes it a little bit differently. But I remember the first time I learned or I heard that, I was like, oh my gosh, literally that's me every day. Like how often do we do that? And I'm sure I'm sure you're doing it. We're both doing it right now where I'm listening to you thinking of what I'm going to say about this. And you're listening to what you're going to say about this. But it's like, why are like why do we do that? And so that's the biggest thing that I've tried to do. Again, kind of related to what I've been saying earlier, and I'm nowhere perfect at it, but it's like I get a response in my head. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Listen to what they're saying because the trend, you know, what they're saying could completely change what my quote unquote response is going to be anyways. And that's not what's important. What's important is like understanding what they're trying to say, right? So that's my biggest thing. Again, my biggest takeaways are from Stephen Covey saying, you know what, I need to stop listening to respond and listen to understand. Because I think as an interviewer, I want to extract the knowledge or the talent or the expertise of the person whom I'm interviewing. And that's what I want to bring out, right? That's the intention kind of is bring out the greatness of that person Mm -hmm. so that other people can see it as well. And learn from it ultimately, but it is an interesting thing to look at how we do that. So you have presented 600 plus times. You don't know the exact number, but many times. 
Many times. What have you learned about engagement with your audience and connecting with them as you begin? Well, the beginning of the presentation in terms of engagement is actually the most important piece of the presentation. As part of my job with community outreach, we go into high schools, we go into elementary schools, we go into businesses. We apply, I mean, we present all across the state with, with some of these different presentations. And the first, regardless of what group you're with, but particularly if they're older than elementary school, <laughs> elementary school just want, you know, they just want to have fun. But otherwise, high schoolers, adults, whatever, those first five minutes are critical and them in, in if they're deciding to engage or listen, right? It, within those first couple minutes of the presentation, if I can't connect with them on a good enough level to where they're going to decide to listen, then they're not going to. They make that decision right off the bat, whether if they're going to both listen and if they're going to engage. And if I haven't gotten them right then, it's going to be a long hour or whatever the rest of, you know, however long my presentation is. I mean, I can try the rest of the time, right? And, and given you're always going to have those groups where no matter what you do, they don't want to be there, but they're not going to participate. And that's just the way it is. But for the most part, we can decide that from the very start of the presentation. In fact, part of my job, actually, what I do is I actually train our new presenters that are on our outreach team. And that's something that I really try and work with them is it's like right off the bat, you don't have to be loud like me, right? I'm not trying to tell you that you need to be a carbon copy of Natalie and that you need to be loud and right in people's faces. Yes, sometimes that can help, but that's not always the answer. But you need to figure out for your personality how you can connect with this audience. And think of the different audiences, right? Because when I go present to a driver's ed classroom in a high school versus a business meeting somewhere with a bunch of grown men, those are very different audiences, right? And I may use different questions I'm going to ask at the start or different jokes or different stories, but there's got to be some way that I can connect with them and get them to connect with me or they're out. They're not listening to the presentation. They're just there because they have to be. The train can leave the station without the passengers on the train. <laughs> I love that. And you're leaving them. <laughs> you're like, I'm off. See you later, guys. Bye. We all just have to be here. So I'm just going to leave. I'm just getting on the train, right? <laughs> and I'm curious, how have you, so when you do, for example, if you're going to present to a high school group of drivers and students, how do you approach them and connect with them? What are some of the things that you do at the beginning? Well, I mean, I think that you know me well enough that I, I don't want to use the word immature, but I just, I'm a goofy personality, right? I can be very professional, but I can also be very goofy. And I think for me, at least with that age group, I want to goof off with them. I mean, I've got things to, you know, they're going to listen to me and I've got things that I've got to talk about that are serious with them. But at the same time, I just want them to know that I'm on their level and we're going to have a good time today. I've got things that are important for you that are going to save your life we're going to have fun. So I try and goof off. I'll try and crack little jokes with them about, you know, either something that's going on that day or even goof off with them in the classroom with, you know, pinpoint somebody that I can tell is going to be, is going to be fun or even just simply asking questions with them. They'll start to laugh. Cause that's the thing for me, humor, especially with that age group for me is one of the biggest ways that works well. And usually I even show a funny little commercial to get them laughing that they can relate to. We have like a texting while walking type of commercial that we use. And so I play that one most of the time because everybody can relate to that. Everybody's walked into something or done something while they've had their phone. So, so anyways, something that they can relate to and laugh at is, is worth the best for me. Yeah. Taking a serious topic and making it less serious so that people can actually feel like, oh, I'm going to engage at this. Or find <laughs> right. and, that, and that's a fine line, right? That's a fine line because 
especially, and we have different types of presentations, but one of our presentations is a really serious one. And it's a really emotional one. Like we share stories of teens that have lost lives and the details and working with their family and all these things. And so it's like this fine line of taking them through the journey of the presentation of taking something serious, making it fun, but then also not blurring that you have this serious info, but you don't want to lose the seriousness of it, but you do need to engage and find those pieces where you can add humor along the way. Yeah. Which is which is hard. It can be hard sometimes. I often take things way too seriously. Like that my tendency is to be too serious. And so it's an interesting thing to try to be like, how can I just take this less seriously in general? <laughs> well, not even all of it's less serious. I just think it's almost just making it relatable. Maybe might even be mm. a better word. Okay, I've got these serious things I need to talk to you about, but how can like not only the info that I'm talking about, but even myself be more relatable to you so that we're just having a conversation you've worked at it natalie and it's working <laughs> i don't know i don't know i'm just i just i just enjoy it so well tell us can you offer any tips to those of us who want to be better presenters i mean because i would assume that you also use humor with the group of older men women whatever whoever your group is i'm su- like humor is kind of a language that everyone speaks and everyone appreciates and that's one of your superpowers how, what's another thing you would recommend to people who are trying to improve their presentation skills? Well, and I wouldn't even just say humor because I think a lot of this is on the presenter personality. I'm naturally, if you know color code, I'm a yellow blue. I, I love to have fun with people. I love to make people feel, you know, just, you know, like they're having fun, but that's my personality. And you have a lot of that in your personality too, but not everybody has that. And that doesn't mean that they can't get that connection with an audience. I would say one of the biggest tips I would say is read the room. When you're the presenter, regardless of what you're presenting on, regardless of what room, what audience, when you're the one at the front of that room, you are literally taking your audience on a journey. You are in control. And this is a variety of ways. I mean this in the sense of if you have the obnoxious participant who has to raise their hand every two minutes to share something, to when you have a dead audience, to all these different pieces, not only are you controlling that in like a classroom management type sense, but you're literally taking them on a journey through your presentation and to control that. Because you decide actually how your audience is going to feel. You decide how they're going to leave, how they're going to feel when they leave. You're the one that's controlling all these things by what you have on your visuals, by the way that you say things, by what you're saying. So it's like really focus on your audience and the things that you're making them feel and see how you're moving the room. Because you're the one that is controlling that through that journey, whether it's a seven minute presentation or a two hour presentation, you're taking them on a journey. And so plan that journey beforehand and practice it, but then actually watch them live and see where you're taking them and make sure that you're taking them where you want to take them. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, can you tell us or recollect a presentation that was unforgettable for yourself or somebody else or for those in the audience and why it was that way? Yeah. I mean, and this is, I hope this doesn't come across in the wrong way. One of our presentations, what we do is called a parent night. And I would say nine out of 10 of these presentations, I feel that way. Um, it's a very, so it's a, it's a, just to kind of give a little context. It's an hour long presentation that we give to at a, at a particular school. And it's all the driver's ed students at that time. And in, in those classes going on at that time and their parents. And so we're in the auditorium together and it could range from one class going on, you know, filled with 60 people in there, or we could even have up to 800 in there. So it really ranges that way. But it's, it's a really impactful presentation. This is the emotional one that I was talking about earlier because we really talk about how 
and I, and I won't dive into the nerdy stuff with this. You'll see I'm a really big traffic safety nerd, but it's like, you know, motor vehicle crashes are one of the leading causes of teens. Parent involvement reduces these. And we were, and we share all these stories and all these things, right? And all the time, this is, this is one of my favorite pieces of presenting. I know every piece of my presentation where I can plan on parents going, or they're dropping their jaw and they're putting their hand on their mouth or they're putting their head down in their hands going, oh my gosh, you know, I can plan every single time of my presentations when that's going to happen. And obviously, you know, there are presentations that still go better than others. And, and multiple times, I mean, I would say over half the time I have parents come up after, and it's not just me, this is anybody on the team. The presentation is on what we call a cadence and something that the agency I works at works really hard to get it in a, a defined groove. Like I was talking about to move the room, but anyway, so it's not just me, but afterwards, multiple times we have parents come up saying, I thought this was going to be stupid because I was required to be here. I am so grateful that I came to this. I am going to drive differently. I'm going to make sure this doesn't happen to my teen, you know, whatever they say. But, and those are the most impactful ones to me, right? Because it's like, you look, come on, a driver's ed presentation. Does that really sound that sexy? Like put it that way, right? Traffic safety is not sexy. We say that all the time. But by the time they leave the presentation, we've impacted them. And that's, it's, it's cool to see, right? And I'm sure you've had plenty of those yourself where it's like, you're hopeful and then you can see it in the audience. And then when they actually come up to you after too, right? There really is an art to presenting and there are things that a person can do to improve their presentation. Content sure. and presentation matters. So for sure, go in hand in hand in that process. But Natalie, is there anything that, I mean, normally I end my podcast asking people about the neighbors in their lives and how they have impacted their lives and helped them to move forward in their own journey? I don't know if this is quite what you're looking for, but I'm going to go this direction. I was recently talking to one of my friends about just safe spaces. And I think you can take that very deep or you can take that very simple. People who have very big things on their mind need safe spaces. But even just in general, we need safe spaces to feel comfortable. I think that that's kind of been neighbors that I appreciate, whether it's friends or, you know, people in religious settings or even at work for a safe space where I not only feel, you know, like I can go and talk about certain things with them that I may not be able to talk about in other spaces, or even just that it's a safe space where I can just, whew, we can just let the air out. And it's just, there's a, there's a safe space. But, and I think some people have a natural ability of creating safe spaces for people. And I think other people work really hard at it. And either way, I, I just think that that's something that you know, we don't recognize how great those safe spaces are. And so I am grateful for the people that provide that space for me in my life. And what is something that you know you're passionate about as you become better at communicating? One thing I'm passionate about that I have to obviously knock it on my soapbox for is traffic safety. <laughs> but in general, I mean, I think one thing for me is oppressed populations. I, I guess I guess what I'm getting at here is I think it's easy for people like you or myself who are in the dominant group, right? Where and, and we may be women, that's an oppressed group, but otherwise, like we're white, we're the dominant religion here, we're all these things that it's easy for people in those shoes to not see the oppression that's going on, whether it's in LGBTQ, whether it's in other races with different things like that, whether it's even just in differences with money and demographics. But I think it's so easy to not see those things and to not experience them that it's like, oh, that doesn't happen. Whereas that's something that I really tried to learn is like, I have friends who I mean, not to get not to get too too deep with this here, but like one of my best friends had she has a teenage 
um, son that's adopt that she adopted as a baby, who's he, and he's a black boy, and he's the sweetest boy you're ever gonna meet. And she just lives up in Davis County, but they have issues all the time from people just down in the neighborhood, from the police department itself, who are just racist. And it's like, it's easy for like people like you and I, for example, to just sit here and say, well, we live in Salt Lake City. This doesn't happen here, right? We see it on the news, but, this, but it does happen here. And again, that's just one example that I'm taking, right? But that is something that I'm passionate is that these things are happening. And, you know, I don't want to get too much into that with religious beliefs and stuff, but it's it's hard for me to sit there and say, well, this isn't happening to us. So, and it was, so it's easy for us to say that when it is happening and they deserve a voice and they deserve, you know, the same rights and all these things that you, I don't know. I don't know if that makes, that's making any sense. I feel like I'm kind of going in circles. Um, but yeah, I just, I just think it's easy for people in the dominant, dominant group to not see or experience those things. And so to not really care, right. Mm-hmm. Or to not really want, I, I don't know. So that's something that I'm trying to see more and to understand more and to almost be a, a voice for those populations. Yeah. In my own little groups, I'm not, you're not necessarily going to see me at, you know, like marches or anything like that. It's not so much my personality, but in my inner circles, that's something that I'm trying to spark more conversation for. That's great. Uh, Natalie, I'm so excited and so grateful for all you do. Where can we go to for the driver's ed presentation? When's our chance <laughs> to come see? Well, you? if you just go to zerofatalities.com. But yeah, we go to businesses. If you'd like us to come to your business, obviously we don't talk about parent involvement there and teen driving, but the basic driving behaviors, distracted driving, buckling up all those kind of things. Um, but yeah, all of our high school presentations are posted on the website. Then we have other things that we do as well. We have an elementary school presentation called Beat the Street. We have a Truck Smart present. You know, we have all sorts of things that we do, but that's our that's our most common one, and we are happy to come if anybody requests it. That's wonderful. And how can people get a hold of you? Just find me on LinkedIn, I guess. Natalie Level. I don't really do the social media stuff that much. So but LinkedIn, I'm pretty good at. It's kind of weird, huh? <laughs> no, that's awesome. That's great. I'm glad that somebody's given LinkedIn a chance. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Natalie, Again, that's my nerdy so. side, I guess. 